morning, everybody. The scripture that I'd like for us to look at together is found in 1 Thessalonians, Paul's first letter to that church, the first chapter. Maybe while you're turning to it, there are several people in this service, and there I know there will be uh, more in the second service, um, who are going to Arizona in the next, this coming week. Don't speak to them. Don't tell them you'll pray for them. They're not good people. Um, they are leaving us in, you know, the, this is the first day of some crummy weather. Um, and so anyway, I just want you to be on alert who to avoid and who to, who to be nice to. Um, <clears throat> anyway, this letter, well, let me back up and just say the Thessalonian church, um, I think by all accounts is the best church in the New Testament. They're the most exemplary. They're a wonderful pattern. Um, Paul had the, the most uh, compliments for them and the least corrections for them. And he held them up as um, a wonderful pattern. And it's partly in that way I want us to look at what Paul says initially about this church as a pattern. Um, Character, the character of a Christian really is here. What I want to say maybe also in the introduction, we're in a day today, I spoke to someone yesterday um, who contacted me told me what a wonderful human being I am and, um, you know, help, for, I formerly pastored. Um, and <clears throat> it struck me looking back on the years ago when I first met some of these people that I'll hear from, how things have changed. And one of the main things that's changed and is changing everywhere in all kinds of ways is the definition of words. Words are vehicles to carry ideas. Okay? The only way we can communicate, the only way we can really talk to one another is if we have common content to the words that we use. And I think, not, not here to you know, complain, woe is me, and so forth, um, but that's one of the things, I think probably the number one thing that I feel I deal with in the ministry is the content of words has so changed that when I say theological terms, probably this, let's just say one word, Christian. I've never seen the like 
of the wildly different and contradictory definitions that people have of the word Christian. Everybody's a Christian. I mean, probably, <clears throat> I don't know, Mussolini and Hitler probably weren't, <clears throat> but they meant well. Um, but everybody else, everyone else, we're all Christian. And so I notice that in private conversations, preaching, whatever else, it's, I feel sometimes, maybe it's not all true, a disconnect. Not specifically with you, but I feel like I'm speaking a different language. I've shown up someplace and I don't, I think I understand the language, but I notice when I use terms, nobody responds like they have the same meaning for the term. Now that's shot through our whole society. There's, we know there's all kinds of terms. The word hate, the word hate has completely flipped. Compassion has completely flipped. Uh, it seems like, and that will tear a society, and it tears the church of Christ apart. Because we end up, not we're, we're speaking past each other, and then we end up, denigrating each other because we don't mean the same thing. We hear today that this is all we hear too in politics, and I'm not going to get into politics, but, <clears throat> you know, who's a true fill-in-the-blank? Who's a real Democrat? Who's a real progressive? Who's a real moderate? Who's a real, who's a rhino? Who's, you know, and we're the true, and you're the not, and... It's crazy. The Christian world is every bit as full of that as the world is. And you can tune in to different church streaming, listen to messages, and we're all over the map as far as what does it mean to be a Christ follower. That's a catastrophe. It really is. Because what it ends up, the fruit of that is that we do not present any kind of a, um, an agreement to the world. The world can look at the church and frankly, um, the church at large, the professing church out here, a lot of times I don't blame the world for having no use for us. And again, I'm speaking at large. What I want us to look at today, first of all, is to always remember whenever we open up this book, this is infallible, authoritative, normative to us. This is not just somebody's opinion. That's another thing that we have lost, even in the church. 
the Bible is today in many ways. It's like a um, buffet. It's like a golden corral, smorgasbord. Uh, I don't like this. I'll, you know, do you want some of this? No, I don't like that. I'll have a spoon of that, but I don't like this, and I, I hate that. You can't do that with the Bible, but that's what we're doing. What Paul describes here in commending, highly commending the Thessalonians is, and I use the word normative, the word normative regarding the word of God, it means this. It means the definition of a Christian, the de description of a Christian, the behavior of Christians is normative, meaning if my experience and my behavior and my walk and my thinking and my beliefs are not in keeping with that, my thinking, walk, and so forth is bogus. It's not biblical. Now, I know we have a word there. That's hate. That's judgmental. No, it's not. It is submitting to God and His Word. So let's read here in the first chapter. It's a short chapter, just 10 verses. And we'll just begin in verse 2, where we have Paul's commendation and description of the Thessalonians, which is intended to be an example and a pattern for us. This is a template that we can hold ourselves up against and say, how do I measure up? Verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning, mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they, that is those far away who don't know you personally, but have heard of you, for they themselves report concerning us, the apostles, and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, there are a lot of characteristics here that we need to pattern ourselves. We'll just look at Five. <clears throat> First of all, verse three, their works, 
their works are a pattern for us. Now, we, I won't spend much time on this, but we hear often today a lot of writing, a lot of Christian books, a lot of preaching, a lot of teaching that works, works are bad. Listen to me here. That works are unnecessary, and in fact, works are an attempt to earn your own salvation, a return to ancient Judaism, and some of Paul's statements taken totally out of context in the book of Romans, where he talks about works are not the way I earn God's favor. That's true. But works are a proof of my faith. They're the natural outflow of my faith. There are a lot of theologies today that teach that even to say to people, you must repent and believe and walk in obedience to God. That's works. That's works salvation. We can't have that. It's only faith. Well, if we misconstrue Paul, I suppose we can get there. But God also spoke through James. And James said, faith without works is dead. It's meaningless. It's not faith. A fundamental Bible truth is that faith and obedience cannot be separated. In fact, Paul talks a lot in the introduction in Romans. He uses an interesting phrase. He said, you followed the obedience of faith. Saying, to believe is to obey. To obey is to believe. To put into practice what I say I believe is faith. Noah, Hebrews. Noah said, moved with fear, built an ark. That was obedience, but it was also faith. Total faith. He believed God's word, he believed God's threat, and he had to maintain that faith while he spent I, nearly 120 years working on a barge on the ark. Every deed he did was an act of faith. You cannot separate faith and works. So Paul points out to them their works, works of faith, works of love, labor of love, so forth, through the Holy Spirit. They lived, there wasn't a gap between the, what they said they believed and how they lived. So their works were exemplary. We need to look at ourselves. Do I have the evidence of walking with God by deeds that are pleasing to God? There's this stark warning at the tail end, very end, of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said, many in that day will say to me, Lord, Lord, we did this, we did that. 
we did great works, we gave a lot of money, and we did, and he'll say, I never knew you. And the word knew there doesn't mean I don't know your name. It's approved of, affirmed. I never approved of you. Yeah, I saw everything you did, but I saw why you did it. I also saw what you didn't do. I didn't approve. Then he said this, only those will enter into heaven who, and here's the little two-letter word, do. <laughs> those who do the will of my Father in heaven. A.W. Tozer's got a great little quote. And on the, at first it may sound a little strange. He said, commandments, commandments are not to be believed. They're to be obeyed. So we can say, I believe in the Ten Commandments. I don't care. You can believe in them all you want. You better do them. We have to do them. I can believe in reading my Bible and praying daily. But it doesn't do any good if I don't do it. I can believe. I can believe in giving of my time, my talents, my treasure. I can believe in tithing my income. But do I do it? So there has to be performance of what I say I believe. Their works, their lives exhibited that they were followers of Jesus. Second, I want to be careful with this word in verses 4 and 5. We know, brothers, right after, now here's a connection, right after 3, when he commends them for their work and their faith and their love and so forth, then in verse 4, we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because... Our gospel came to you not only in word, but in power and the Holy Spirit, full conviction. So here is, here's a term, you don't have to memorize this, but it's still a good term. It's called synergism. It's a, it's a doctrine. Monergism is a doctrine of salvation that teaches that God does everything for us. He draws us, he calls us, of course he died for us. He determines, he, he makes us, he inclines us to repent, he inclines us to obey him, and he saves us, and there's nothing for us to do. We are swept along by the Holy Spirit's power, and we don't really do anything. That's a false doctrine. Synergism is divine human cooperation. Yes, God powerfully calls us, draws us, reveals our heart need, and tugs at our heart, and convicts us. But I must respond through the will that he's given me. He aids that response, but I still have to choose to respond. It's a divine human cooperation. He calls, I respond. He commands, I obey. Granted, the power to obey, to respond, only comes from God, so it's still salvation by grace. But I 
have to cooperate. And if I don't cooperate, I don't have salvation. So this, these two verses together, you believed, you love, you're convinced by the Holy Spirit. God chose you. But it, it is not, he, he did not predetermine us. He predetermined the plan of salvation. But he never determines the participants in salvation. That's my choice. And I will live or die by it in eternity. You're chosen, though. God called them and they responded. There's worth then. They're, they're worth in the sight of God. I don't mean that there is gradations of worth, that God likes other people and doesn't like. I don't mean that. But there is, there is a special affection that God has, obviously, for those who follow him and love him. There is a, Jesus uses a number of statements that on the surface might shake us a bit. We talk often about the unconditional love of God. Is, is that true? Is, is God's love unconditional? Yes, with an asterisk. He unconditionally loves the whole world enough to die for us. But Jesus said, especially many times in John, if you obey my Father, I will love you. And he said, we, my father and I, will come to you and we will dwell with you and we will eat with you, we'll fellowship with you. What does all that say? The main word in that entire section is that little two-letter word, if. If you love my father, we will love you. That's conditional love. That strikes some times that we might think, well, wait a minute, I thought God unconditionally. Yes, redemptively, he loves the entire world. And in a creative sense, he's our father to everyone. But in a redemptive sense, he's only my father if I love, trust, and obey him. So there is a special value that he places on those who've responded to his call. There's a third characteristic here in verse 6, just the first part. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. We'll just stop there for a second. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. Now, Paul's saying a lot here. I don't, he's an apostle inspired by the Holy Spirit. I don't, I wouldn't, I, I know I don't think I could say what he said. Here he says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. He puts no difference between the way he lived and taught and walked among them and the Lord. And he also, in other letters, says, 
follow me even as I follow Christ. That's a frightening statement. I, I think, man, alive. I, I don't measure up there. Now, I don't mean that I'm, you know, barely evading getting the blotter. I don't mean that I have some, you know, secret. I, I've been arrested multiple times, but I've kept it away from you. But I look and I think, what? How could you say that? But he did. You follow Jesus like I follow Jesus. And it'll lead you to heaven. That's what Paul's saying. And you know what the word imitator here is? It's a little Greek word for mimic. Mimic. Now, what I think of here is child's play. I mean, I can, there were five of us kids. I was the oldest. And five of us in 11 years. Well, we'd go on vacation. We'd drive from Oregon clear to Indiana. It's a, my parents were insane by the time they got to Indiana because that's where all of our relatives were. went to the farm. City kids going to the farm. Hens quit laying. Cows dried up because we were there playing in the hay mow and trying to ride the pigs. And I don't know what my cousins and aunts and uncles, but I know every farm animal, I'm sure, lined the fence, grateful to see our car head back to Oregon. <clears throat> we we would sit in the back seat of the car and when you get tired of counting signs and you know all that kind of stuff then what do you start doing you start needling each other and we would whatever my sister would say or i would say somebody else would say the exact same word and then you'd say stop doing that and they say stop doing that and pretty soon you know there's arms coming over from the front seat Knock it off. But that little word here, that's what that word means. Mimic. You became mimics of us and of the Lord. So it's not just kind of a rambling, sloppy, loose kind of following Jesus that I get to define. Paul defines it here as mimic. Every action, every move he makes, every word, that's what I do. Do you see what I'm talking about? How we have expanded the definition of Christian in our country to where it doesn't bear any resemblance to what the Bible's definition is. Now granted, God's not talking about failures, mistakes, stupidity. He, we can get to heaven being weird and stupid, but not being disobedient willfully. Their walk then was an amazing walk because they imitated Christ. Notice a fourth characteristic that we have to remember. It's everywhere in Scripture. In this sixth verse, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. In the middle of, we can say, for you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. Their warfare 
The Christian walk is upstream, against the current, against the wind. We're not in a world that is, in the words of Isaac Watts, an ancient hymn writer, 1700s, this world is no friend to grace. This, to, it says, to help us on to God. This world is not interested in our souls and in helping us make it to heaven. Everything in this world is against us, intentionally so. And we have a supernatural foe who does everything he can possibly do to turn me aside from the true way. One of his best ways is to redefine the true way. Rather than us deliberately, I'm saying, I'm going to walk in the wrong way and I'm doing it, I don't care. Who does that? Very, very, very few. But our subtle enemy redefines the way. And then we can take not maybe a sharp 90 degree turn. He doesn't care if it's three degrees. Just get off a little bit and we're in trouble. So we're in a warfare. We have to face it. The gospel that's preached today that's been labeled the prosperity gospel is very popular. But it's false. It's false. These people who, and preachers and writers who promise us, if you follow Jesus, I tell you, everybody else's, how's your 401k doing, everybody? How's your retirement doing? Well, if you're a Christian, it won't. I don't care what stock market does, it goes straight up. And you're prosperous, and you're healthy, and you don't get sick, and you don't have trouble, and your kids aren't wayward. It's a lie. Paul told, Paul told not only the Thessalonians, but others, through much tribulation, you'll enter the kingdom of God. There's, but notice he also says, we have in this affliction, joy of the Holy Spirit, because we know where we're headed. You ought to read Pilgrim's Progress. If you ever uh, haven't, or if you did, read it again. The, the Christian walking towards the celestial city, and it grows brighter and more distinct as he walks. And that's what we're looking at. The celestial city, making it safe. John Wesley, I want to know one thing, the way to heaven. How to land safe on that happy shore. That's the only thing that matters. So, they pressed on in the middle of warfare. Finally, 10 through, or 7 through 10. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, but your faith in God's gone forth everywhere. We don't need to say anything about you because your reputations preceded us even when we say we had great success as we brought the gospel of Thessalonica and they could say, yeah, we already heard about it. And what did they hear? They heard that they received the word of God and 
Notice this description in verse 9. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Their witness is the final thing. That's a pattern. And notice here, everyone's, everyone's conversion to the Lord and so forth, the way the route we take to finally find God, we may have been raised in a Christian home, we may have been raised in an awful home. There, there are unnumbered circumstances in our lives. But there are some similarities that will always be there. Turn from idols to serve the living as opposed to dead idols, things that don't matter. You turn to God from idols. That is a radical, abrupt transformation. Let me just exhort us here. Paul said to the Corinthians, examine yourselves. Make sure you're in the faith. Have we had, and, and again, there will be a myriad different kinds of circumstances, emotions and so forth, in being converted. The day you repent, put your faith in Jesus, ask forgiveness. But there are certain characteristics that will always be found. One, it's radical. It is a radical transformation. Now, there are a lot of people that will call themselves Christians who've not had a transformation. They may have had a reformation. Reformation is all nice and good. It does kind of clean us up on the outside. And we may look better. We may not be as offensive. And we might knock off some of the worst of our habits. But Reformation is bootstrap religion. Reformation is by my own strength, and I just straighten myself up. And I would do that. I would get to where even, even I thought, you know, I'm getting a little far over the line here. And so I'd straighten up, and my language would clear up for a while, and I'd be more decent, and I'd try to be nicer, and whatever. It never lasts. But Reformation does salve our conscience. It's a fake salving of our conscience. But it does make us feel a little bit better about ourselves. You know, I'm doing better. You know, I've only done X. You know, I've, I, I haven't. It's been weeks. <clears throat> it's been weeks since I robbed a 7-Eleven. I'm really doing good. Reformation always runs out of steam. And we fall back into the old habits and the old ways. I have to have a transformation. You turned from idols to God. The living and true God. And further, not just to turn away from idols, but to serve the living and true God. What does serving mean? It means I am lock, stock, and barrel God's. 
I do what he tells me. I go where he sends me. It depends on our ages and so forth. But in my case, I knew for some years, had a dim sense through late high school, early college, that I was called to preach. I, there's no way I was going to do that. And, but it just began to get stronger. And, and as I fought against it, that call got stronger and I got meaner and worse and more foul-mouthed and godless. You can't fight God. Whatever light he's giving you and stay the same. We never stay the same. Pushing against God, we, we dive into deeper wickedness because we're rebelling against God. When I got saved, knelt by the side of my bed and asked God to forgive me, it was a given. I'm going to be a preacher. And in this particular case, the timing and whatever, within 10 days, this is proof. This is proof of a radical transformation. I left the Oregon that doesn't exist anymore, but I left Eugene, Oregon, where I loved it, and went to Oskaloosa, Iowa, okay, to a little tiny Bible college where they had all kinds of dumb rules. They were very kind of legalistic, but I know God told me to go there. I'd known about it, and as soon as I got right with God, I just knew that's where I'm supposed to go. And so within 10 days, I was there. God got me away from my friends. I met Liz two days after I got there. I had no idea, you know, that that was a reason he sent me there, but it was. And my life radically changed. There's got to be evidence of a radical turning from and turning to and serving God. I'm not running the show anymore. If he wants me to go to Oskaloosa, Iowa, and I thanked God when <laughs> I left there for the last time, but I don't care. He told me to go there. That's good enough. You go. What a peace and a joy frankly, full, utter surrender to God. I don't have to worry about stuff. Now, yeah, we worry about things. You know what I mean. But ultimately, God's got it. I don't know. I don't know what the next week, the next month, the next years hold for me. I don't know, but God does. He isn't chewing his fingernails. He knows what he's doing. And the longer we walk with God, like these Thessalonians, we can look back and we can say, you know what? God's never failed me. Never, ever failed me. Their witness then was of a radical change and a newfound service to God where they were no longer in charge. And God, God was their God. And they have, there's something about the Thessalonians that we also must have. 
we could spend more time on this, but, but we won't. In a, in a kind of poetic sense, the genuine Christian is not at home in this world. The genuine Christian, in a spiritual sense, has a far-off look in their eye. This is not our home. And we've got to remember that. The things that can so captivate us, get us wound up, and our attention and exertion is poured into this and we're all worked up. What will that thing or that activity or that endeavor or this pursuit, will it matter at Judgment Day? When I stand before God and the books are opened, will whatever it is I'm worked up about today and pursuing with everything I've got, will it even come up on Judgment Day? Will it even be an issue? And the last thought that we have here, the Thessalonians and St. Paul and God who inspired this, never ever subtracts from the picture the ultimate purpose of salvation. It is to save us from the wrath to come. That's hell. That's judgment. The awfulness of standing before God who I have, if I have, rejected God, paid no regard to him, I can't, I wish I had the words, but I don't know if a human does. The horror of standing before, finally, the openness of God himself, who we can't even look upon, and that awesome statement, the books were opened. They never forgot. I want to walk with God because that's the alternative. These are some of the characteristics of what the Bible means. Not our current culture, even the current church culture. This is what God means when he says the word Christian. Where, where do we line up? Let's bow our heads. The best, of course, physician of our souls is God. And he knows our hearts. And he knows our state. He knows our condition. He knows where we stand with him. And he's always faithful to tell us and the reason he tells us is not to grind our faces in the dirt and leave us with no hope, but it's he's the greatest physician there is. And if he sees something that displeases him or is hurtful to our own health, he's out to fix it and change it and give us deliverance.
Father in heaven, this morning I want to take just a moment and thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of scripture. And I pray, Lord, that this church would have a reputation like the Thessalonica's did. But we need to follow that example. We need to follow the example of Christ and Paul the Apostle and this church. And if we will do that, we will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. We will land safely on heaven's shores and we will do well on this side of heaven. So by your grace, I just commit all of us this morning as a group to be like the Thessalonica church, but as individuals to follow you as Paul did. He set that example before us. You have set that example before us and you give us the grace to do it. Now may we be obedient and get up and go in that manner. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.